Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time again for another episode of Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality today. With a dash of recovery thrown in along the way. So if you've ever had your own questions about your own church, maybe become a bit jaded to the whole subject of religion itself, hey, you've come to the right place. Because today our show is entitled Clean, Sober, and Wonderful. Let's bring in our wonderful host. He was a philosophy honor student, ordained a Presbyterian minister. He even planted a few churches along the way. But now... He's just wonderfully asking the same question, wandering the world. Why? Why not bring him in, the host of Her Church and Dr. John Bash. Welcome, sir. 165,148. That's how many deaths from COVID-19 to this exact moment in the United States. Everything in life has changed, and we live in fear and shock from this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. 67,367. That's how many people died from drug overdoses in 2018. 70,237 was the number of the year earlier. Wait, I'm talking about annual numbers here, not a one-time pandemic. It doesn't take many years for these numbers to far exceed the deaths from COVID-19. It's simply breathtaking. The opioid epidemic, quote, is devastating America. Overdoses have passed car crashes and gun violence to become the leading cause of death for Americans under 55. The epidemic has killed more people than HIV at the peak of the disease, and its death toll exceeds those of the wars in Vietnam and Iraq combined. Funerals for young people have become common. Every 11 minutes, another life is lost. So why do so many people start using these drugs? Why don't they just stop? That was the beginning of an article in the New York Times in December 2018 entitled, A Visual Journey Through Addiction. One young woman described her drug use with the words, It's like being hugged by Jesus. Reality is that until one's life is personally touched by drug abuse, it really is just another sad statistic. It's like hearing about a war on the other side of the world compared to feeling a bomb going off in your backyard. Why pay attention? Why care? So today, today we're going to bring it a little closer to home than I'd prefer. We're going to talk to a young Orange County woman who's worked in almost every aspect of the recovery industry in the past 10 years, and yes, it is an industry. Her credentials? Really, her credentials are mainly found in the story behind her resume. Growing up, she excelled on the soccer field, her blonde ponytail bouncing behind her as she sped by the opposing team, juggling the ball as if she was born with it. Her laughter and joy filled the field. She was a preacher kid, too going to church every Sunday for four hours and a few times during the week. I bet you feel it coming, don't you? Caitlin Ann, welcome to Church Hurts Ann. Hi, thanks for having me. Caitlin, our listeners are pretty smart people and they know what's coming. So let's just dive to your bottom. What was life like at the end of your drug use? Give me the picture. 
Okay. So there's been um, a couple, um, but um, at the end of my drug use, um, one time um, I was in a motel room in Costa Mesa. Um, I had no idea that I was in Costa Mesa um, and I was strung out on heroin and crack. In a motel room for how long? In a motel room, I couldn't give you a complete honest answer, but I believe a month and a half. Wow. And where did anybody in your life know where you were? Yeah. So the two people I was with were both my drug dealers. So I was in a motel room with two of my drug dealers and I did not want my friends to know exactly where I was or my family. So those were the only two people that really knew. Now, okay. We started, as you said, when we talk about bottoms and you said there were a few of them and we're going to talk about that in a little bit in terms of what that really means about bottoms because the average person doesn't necessarily know what that is. But how did you get there? You were this sweet little girl growing up in Irvine, of all places, in Woodbridge, the safest city in America, when a, a preacher's, your dad was a preacher, and you, it sounds like a perfect life. How, how did that get so messed up? Yeah, you know, I I truly did have um, a really good childhood. Um, I had great parents, supporting parents. Um, a gr- I mean, I grew up in Irvine. I mean, you know, um, it was a beautiful place to grow up. And um, you know, I just I met the I met the people, and the people that I became friends with were drug addicts. Mm. Yeah. And, and how, how many years was that? And how, how young were you when you started? So the first time I started using alcohol, I was in seventh grade. Mm. So I started drinking in seventh grade and then I found meth in eighth grade. Wow. So what is that? 14, 13, 14. Gee. And you were how old when you finally quit? So the first time I quit, I, it was two months before my 16th birthday. So tell me, I, you know, when we talked, you mentioned the first time that you quit drugs. There was something about a girl that you knew who found out you had a problem. Uh, tell me about her. Yeah. So word got around in high school that I, um, that I got caught with drugs, um, not by the police, but by my parents. And she found out and she saw me walking down the street one day and she pulled over and she said, Hey, um, I would like to take you to a recovery meeting. And, um, I didn't know what she meant, but at that time I had no friends. Um, all my friends didn't really want anything to do with me. And, um, so I was like, whatever, a friend I'll go, I'll do whatever. So she picked me up that week and took me to a meeting. And you had not been using drugs for like two or three months before that, right? Correct. My parents had sent me away to, um, to a family friend's house. And um, I was there for, I believe, a month and a half. And I came back and, uh, yeah, I mean, I reached out to my friends and they, they weren't calling me back. <laughs> So, so let me get the picture though. In general, so while other kids in high school, you know, the cheerleaders are out there with their pom poms, and kids are joining clubs and on sports teams, um, you're 
you're kind of you're using drugs or you're going to recovery meetings uh, it doesn't sound what really <laughs> i know i know it's um you know i think about when i see a 15 or 13 year old kid and i can't imagine them doing drugs like i was um it just is so young and um my life i was actually very blessed um to get into recovery at a very young age um but yes i was either doing drugs or I was in recovery and I was in recovery, um, for the last two years of my high school. So my junior and senior year, I was sober. So you're going to meetings during the week with actually a bunch of other kids. Yes. And you were pretty close. You had like the high school group in a recovery meeting at a, at a cool recovery club type thing. And then you guys all put your heads together and you thought you had a better idea than all these old people going to recovery meetings with you. Yes. What was that? (laughs) So I was actually very fortunate that I was able to find friends that were staying sober like I was and that were my age. Um, You know, that, that is incredible that I was able to find that. Um, But at the, once I graduated high school, I mean, I was so young when I got sober So I really thought there was this voice inside my head that said that it was just a phase, that I really wasn't an addict. Like everybody pictures an addict or an alcoholic being so much older. And, you know, here I was, I was 18 years old and I had two years of sobriety. And I was just like, that had to be a phase. Um, So me and five of my friends decided that we were going to go drink um, because we it was just a phase. We could, we could do it normally. And, um, we all went out and got a beer and cheers and, um, it didn't turn out the way I envisioned it. But what, what happened? So I'm picturing five kids. You're still illegal, right? Or I don't know. Was it drinking legal at 18? No. Who knows? 21. But anyway, for you, <laughs> I haven't used drugs, alcohol, no big deals. So you're all having a beer, right? Yeah. And, and what happened? Did you have a second one? Um, yeah, I had quite a few after that. Um, you know, the, what happens for a person like me and an alcoholic, um, is the phenomenon of craving hits once you take that first drink. And, um, and what happened was definitely not something I planned. And within an hour I was smoking meth, uh, within seven days I was homeless. Uh, within 14 days I was shooting meth and uh shooting heroin and back in a motel room and the other four how how did it work out for them uh the same yeah so you have you have a beer and then you all go off to your own drug of choice correct yeah so um yeah exactly we all ended up pretty beat up and so the one time when you started, um, I don't know if it's the same time, but you mentioned literally that in order to get out of that scene, your friends ended up kidnapping you. Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah. So um, my best friend, um, she, her and I got sober. We met at 15. We had done the sobriety thing together. We were so close. We ended up getting, you know, relapsing, getting loaded together. And, you know, the second we got loaded, we kind of like went separate ways and she ended up getting sober quickly before I did. And 
I called her from the motel room and I usually blocked my number because I didn't want her to know where I was. And that, I mean, I was so out of my mind. I didn't block my number. So she called the number back, found out where, where I was and three people um, from recovery came and kidnapped me from the hotel room and or motel room and took me to detox. Mm. Is it really true you said that like when they brought you in, you literally could not see? Yeah, I I was so sick. I believe I they weigh you and do all the physical stuff when you check into detox. Um, and this was not a medical detox. So I didn't get the pleasure or comfort of that. Um, so I did it cold Turkey. And I remember on uh, day 21 of detoxing that I could see, like, I just remember, like, I it felt like I could see color again. And it was, um, you know, I was, I was pretty beaten up. I was 85 pounds when I checked in. Mm. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing Caitlin, um, and I really appreciate you being so honest that it can't be easy to be that vulnerable about that stuff. But I'm guessing that some of our listeners um, are probably parents and, and some may be active users themselves. Um, some wondering if they have a problem with drugs or alcohol, um, as well as the parents that have, you know, kids that may be struggling, um, adult kids or, um, you know, but they're sitting there saying, you know, if my kids, others are saying, if my kids did that, I'd kill them. I'd kill them. I mean, you must have some crazy liberal parents. I mean, it wouldn't happen in my house, right? What would you say to them? Yeah, you know, my, my parents were definitely not liberal. Um, they, they weren't the strictest parents, but I mean, they definitely wanted us to be free and to feel free. We, we moved to, to Irvine so that they could, so that we could have that kind of life, that we could be free and they wouldn't have fear of something bad happening to us. So it's a very unexpected, unexpected place for something like this to happen, but it will, it could happen in any area. It does not matter where you live. Um, it, it can, it's drugs are found everywhere. Um, and if a parent has a child or if they're questioning themselves, I mean, you can definitely reach out to help go to a meeting, um, you know, reach out, tell somebody that you, you know, you're, you're struggling or you have questions. I mean, there's so many resources, especially in Orange County. Um, this is the Mecca of uh, drug treatment. Um, there's just so many resources here specifically. So you ended up, and we were kind of skipping the part of the store, you ended up becoming a trained drug and rehab you know, specialist and you were a counselor and, and you actually sold for rehab companies, you would sell their services and for hospitals, for people who would call from all over the country to say, what do I do? Does my insurance qualify? Where can you get me into? And I'm saying, but beneath all that, you've seen a lot now. Was there a secret sauce? Is, is it the answer really go to a meeting? There is no secret sauce. I do believe everybody's story is different. Um, for me, I can only share with my story. And yes, I worked in the treatment industry for 10 years. Um, I worked in every aspect of the drug and alcohol treatment center industry. And for me, um, I didn't um, go into treatment the first time. Um, I just went to a meeting and um, I reached out for help. Mm. 
Hey, Paul. Um, I like to bring our producer, Paul. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, um, let us see your face here on our, our Zoom. You like the Zoom? You're going to uh, see me crying if you see Zoom my face radio. here. It's an, a touching story here, absolutely. Yeah, so, so what can do you I, Can I ask you this? one question that occurs to me? I'm a parent, uh, as John is, and we've had other people like yourself come on the show. And two questions. This is every parent's nightmare. What could your parents have done different? Not you. But is there anything your parents could have done to stop this? No. And that's the answer I hear all the time. We had a, we had a young man on our show a couple of years ago. We we did a show on um, with a therapist, and she would bring some of her patients, and she did drug and alcohol treatment. And this young man, he said, my parents were nice to me. My parents were strict with me. My parents tried tough love. They tried no love. They tried everything they could think of. And he said... There was, and he said, and I asked him the same question. He said, there's nothing they could have done. Once I tasted it, once I tried it, there's nothing anybody could have done. What a nightmare. Yeah. Because as a parent, you're there to protect your children. If they something happens to your children, you blame yourself. Mm-hmm. And yet, here's something you have no control over. You put them in the safest environment in the world, and they get one access to this, the right person to, in front of the right drug, and you've got a never-ending spiral until they decide it's time to quit. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the the heartbreaking thing about it is that there is no way to help the person until they're ready to get help. And, you know, my parents did the same thing. You know, they tried tough love. They tried love. They tried, you know. Sending you away, sending you, monitoring you, everything they could think of to do. Yeah, yeah. They tried everything and nothing and nothing would work. And, you know, they ended up reaching out to people in in the recovery industry and, you know, trying to ask for help. And they're just like, stop. So, I mean, I feel like and they did. They ended up, you know, not co-signing what I was doing. They didn't give me money. They took away everything. So it was it was difficult because they took away my car. They took away my phone. They took away everything. So, I mean, I do think that that got me sober quicker, but that definitely wasn't the reason why I got sober. So why'd you get sober? I got sober. So this last time, um, 11 years ago, uh, my sobriety date is June 27, 2009. And I guess stop um, you for one second. I, every addict or alcoholic I've met, my uncle was an alcoholic, can tell you the moment, the day they got sober for the rest yes. of their life. Yes. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's not a date that you choose. It's no, not right. um, a life that you choose. Obviously, it's definitely when I was a little girl, I wasn't like I want to be a drug addict when I grow <laughs> up, you know. Right. Um, I had bigger dreams than that. Um, but, yeah, so I was, 11 years ago, over 11 years ago, um, it wasn't as crazy as the time before in the motel room. It was more of an emotional bottom. And you can have any kind of bottom. It doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be shooting heroin in a motel. Um, This last time, you know, it was an emotional bottom. I just could not stay sober. And I was so sick and tired of being sick and tired. Mm -hmm. And um, it was, I just didn't want to feel the way I was feeling anymore. And I knew that I needed to do something different. And, you know, somebody once said to me, your best thinking got you to where you were. 
and it was time to listen to somebody else. Um, Boy, that's a and, powerful statement because we we rely on our own self, our brain, mm-hmm. to help us, to save us, to guide us through. And when your brain can't help, when your brain is maybe even hurting, yeah. how do you let go? Yeah, and that that's where that's where you know reaching out for help is is the key and listening to somebody else the young man's story who i'm thinking of i wish i could remember his name but it was a power as as is this a very powerful vulnerable tale told that i'll never forget i forgot his name but i'll never forget the story and he said same thing he grew up somewhere here in affluent orange county and went through everything his parents tried everything and nothing worked he was in and out of jail he was uh, homeless. He was in motels. He was all this kind of stuff. And he said, finally, he said it was a stranger at one of the 8,000 rehab things he was at who simply went up to him and said, you're better than this. And he said that so touched him at that moment that some stranger cared. It, it didn't matter that his mom and dad cared and his sisters and cared and his friends cared and everybody else cared. He could ignore all that. But some stranger just touched him in a way that that just yeah. struck him. And, and so the third question I ask is, why are so many who've gone through this hell committed to helping others? I would think you'd run so far away from me, you wouldn't ever want to see or talk or admit it. I'm never going to, da, 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 and I don't want to hear about it anymore here. Yeah. Um, I feel like because once you experience something like that, you experience the pain, you experience the loss, you experience, I mean, for me, it was just so painful that if I can offer a little bit of help or a little bit of faith to somebody that it will get better, um, I will, I, I love doing that. I mean, how could I not? How could I, how could I deny that? of somebody when that was so freely given to me. Because it hurts even to think about it, and you don't ever want to think about it again. Yeah, I can come up with about 100 reasons I wouldn't give it to somebody else. I wouldn't give it another thought. Hey, yeah. Paul, let's, let's, um, let's get to the rest of the story. Yes. You're the producer. How much time we have? We're as much time out. as you need. Um, i tell you what. Um, I go to the, where we began 11 years and a few months ago, could you imagine what your life is like now? I mean, I mean, you know, I'm thinking, you know, people just saying, oh, another preacher's kid. Yeah, you're just reacting. And Well, what is know, her life now? you got to tell everybody what her life is now. Yeah, what, what, tell yeah, us where you're at today. Yeah, so, you know, through, through working the recovery program and um, – being honest with myself and um, not going back to using drugs and alcohol, um, you know, my life did slowly get better. It was a slow process, though. Um, If you are trying to get sober now and you're like this pain or how tough life is doesn't feel like it's ever going to end, it does. Um, Everybody's story is so different. And for me, Um, I have an amazing husband. Um, We were friends before we started dating and um, we just have the most, you know, honest, loving, caring relationship. 
and um, we just had a baby girl in December, wow, so she's eight months old yeah. now. Hopefully, you gave her and another Irish name here. <laughs> her name is Cooper. Cooper. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the the relationship we have is just um, is a is a is an example of the recovery. And we wouldn't have what we have today if it weren't for. How did you know, he accept your past? I would think many would run, thinking it might reoccur. If I if I if I lied to myself about what was real, um, I could never move forward. You're saying, I, how did he accept? How did he accept it? How, how, so you meet somebody, and and he knows this story. I would think most would run once you told them that story. <laughs> Well, lucky for me, um, he has a similar story. Ah, <laughs> yeah. a little sympathy yeah. here. Okay. Yeah. So we met in recovery. There you go. Yeah. So, um, I, you see me all emotional. If, if people who end up watching this on YouTube, um, I guess we had a. Is it time for the great reveal here? Something. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody who's listened to your questions has any doubt that this is your daughter. Oh, yeah. I call her Chicky, and that's politically incorrect. (laughs) Um, And um, next time, Kate, uh, next time we do the show together, we're going to start out with uh, the time you said, Hey, Dad, you have a problem, too. Yes. Uh, Yes, we will. Let me just wrap up with a few words and thanks so much, Kate, for coming in. And um, yes, you do have an amazing husband and a perfect child who will continue to be perfect until she figures out that she's a lot like you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Before we go, I'm scared. Yeah, <laughs> and you should be. A <laughs> few words about church and people. You notice we didn't talk a lot about church today. Being a preacher's kid and going to church wasn't enough to keep Caitlin away from drugs. Many recovery groups, they talk about drugs and alcohol as being cunning, baffling, and powerful. Sometimes we think church should be like a vaccine to the evils of this world. It isn't, and it can hurt. We think it should be. It's interesting to me that while church doesn't keep people from any of the evils in the world they wish it would, the beginning of any good recovery program starts by acknowledging that we don't do it very well in life when we try to play God. As Caitlin said, her plan wasn't working so well. We don't have to go to church to do that, but sometimes it helps. In the 1930s and 40s, when the modern recovery movement began, Clergy were some of the earliest adopters and close confidants of the leaders. The Bible was a key resource, readily quoted from and used in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, often without giving it any credit. Meeting rooms were most often found in basements of churches given freely or at a minimal cost to those seeking help. No doubt some religious folk thought simple repentance and a strong will should be all an addict needed centuries of drunkenness and addiction have proved otherwise, but we can be slow learners. For today, I'm glad you got to meet a recovering addict and to hear a bit of her story. Five years ago today, her brother dove off a boat and instantaneously became a quadriplegic. So 
in the next day or two, we're going to have dinner together and toast recovery and celebrate with two people who were at the top of my list for most respected in life, son and daughter. Life is weird, and God is good. Sure don't like his plan sometimes, <laughs> but I love his ands. Church hurts and it's worth the thought. This is John Bash. Love somebody today, won't you? And enjoy God. Wow. And that brings us to the close of another emotional edition of Church Hurts and with a lot to think about and a lot to be hopeful for. We hope that you'll come back each and every week. And we hope you'll pick up a phone or an email and continue the conversation with our host, Dr. John Bash. He's a shepherd with Standing Stone. He's still standing after a lot of stones have been thrown at him. It's a nonprofit ministry committed to caring for pastors who need help. If you'd like to find out more about what we're all about, churchhurtsand.org is the place for you to check in. And if you want to add your story to those amazing tales we continue to tell, reach out. We'll talk. See you next time. Right here in Orange County's only community radio station, OCTalkRadio.net. Thank you.